0: What up, Cavs Nation, and welcome back to another edition of the Wine and Gold Podcast. I am your co-host for the day, Jimmy Watkins, filling in for Ethan Sands, and we are joined, as always, by Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com, our Cavs beat reporter. Chris, all-star break goes by fast when you're trying to enjoy it. Um, Cavs are back at practice today. How are you feeling, Chris? How did the break treat you?
2: Break was great, Jimmy. Uh, It was much needed, uh, an opportunity to kind of step away, recharge, because the final 29 games, whoo boy, they are going to be a grind. They call the season a grind, the second half of the season. Um, It's not going to be a picnic for the Cavs. It's not going to be a picnic for me. So it was great to just have time to reconnect with the family, and I spent as much time as I possibly could with my son, and that's everything that I wanted.
0: Yeah, you would think the the fifty three game first half out of eighty two. You would think that's the grind, but the Cavs <laughs> the Cavs have quite the condensed schedule that we will yeah. we will look ahead to. We're going to spend this podcast uh, talking mostly about the second half, real quick, since it is the All Star break, and we had a because it was so bad. I think we had an interesting <laughs> All Star weekend. <laughs> Lots of complaints about. Um, I mean, Saturday night, yeah, they could have used more pizzazz. The All Star game is. This is an ongoing issue. How do, we make a, how do we make people care about it, both the players and, and the viewers? Um, I, I want to ask this, Chris. Why, why should we care? What purpose does the All-Star Game and the All-Star Weekend serve in your mind? Oh,
2: jeez. At this point, I, I honestly don't know, Jimmy. Um, you know, I think All-Star Weekend, All-Star Saturday night, just being an event – is something that that players and fans look forward to. The game itself is supposed to be the culmination of that, the capper of that. And it just hasn't been for the last, I don't know, how many years. So it seems like the best thing about the All-Star break and the most important thing to look forward to is the fact that it is a quote-unquote break. And it allows people to kind of escape and and i don't know that it's supposed to be that solely but that's what it has become solely
0: yeah i'm kind of like i've seen a lot of maybe we just get rid of the all-star game takes in in the and like honestly no skin off my bones i i truly like to be completely Yeah. i watched about a quarter and a half of the all-star game on sunday i saw what the deal was and it's like I'm going to go check out this Mr. and Mrs. Smith show on, on prime video. Like I, even <laughs> you could, you could argue it's kind of our job to watch the all-star game, Yeah. but I just, I, I couldn't do it. I think, and I think that's how a lot of people like invested NBA fans. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not just the all-star game is supposed to be about a, a expanding your audience. Right. Right. Even invested people who are, who live and die by this are watching, you know, 60 plus of 82 games for their favorite team. They just don't have a reason to, to, to care anymore. And I think – I mean to answer my own question, I think it matters because the NBA is kind of – I'm not kind of. The NBA has an image problem right now.
1: Like yeah,
0: again, the 60 of 82, those people, we already have them. They know what the deal is. But for, for the audience, the casual audience, the people who loved the 90s, like they, they, there's a perception and it's not all the way incorrect. That the the large, the lion's share of the basketball season doesn't matter to the people playing the basketball.
2: Yeah, I know.
0: You know, it's, it's, yep. and the All Star game is supposed to be a showcase event, and it just hammers home that message as hard as you possibly can. I mean, you could, it's it's supposed to, like Kobe Bryant's word, it's supposed to be the world's greatest pickup game, and it can be a pickup game. Like, it, we don't, we're not asking you. To go out there and and risk turning an ankle, I've seen seen guys say that. Oh, we could get hurt. I mean, you kind of you know how to not get hurt, but also still make it look like you're playing basketball, right? Like you don't have to you don't have to insult our intelligence like that. I think that's really. I think that's why Adam Silver was kind of miffed when he was handing out the trophy and he sort of gave the half-hearted congratulations. Like we're trying to we're trying to build something or build on something here, and the players are just are not pulling their weight on that part of it during the all-star all-star break i don't know
2: man yeah jimmy i think there can be some middle ground right you don't have to be at one end of the spectrum or the complete other end of the spectrum there's somewhere in between that you feel like can work for players that you feel like can work for nba commissioner adam silver and the fans as well and just a little bit more compete a little bit more intensity a little bit more effort something that was a little bit different than what it was uh, this past weekend. Look, there were moments throughout the course of the All-Star Game that were pretty spectacular, that were a showcase of some of the young talent um, that maybe not everybody has paid attention to throughout the course of this year. Um, there were moments in the All-Star Game that, that they were a showcase of just how incredibly talented all of these guys are and how there are levels to greatness still like Tyrese Halliburton doing what he did at the beginning where he made five threes in a row. Some of them. In 90 seconds.
1: In 90
0: seconds.
2: That moment was incredible. Some of the shots that Dame hit from basically the logo where he flicked his wrist and made it look like a lip. Incredible as well. But, but those were overshadowed by the other, I don't know, 40 minutes of just, here you go, do whatever you want to. And you could tell, Like Nikola Jokic, the best player in the NBA, quite possibly the MVP this year, he had no interest in playing because he looked at the game as a joke. Same thing with Luka Doncic. If the players are going to start looking at the game as a complete joke, and Anthony Edwards, you know, an up-and-coming player, somebody that may potentially, and I say may potentially, one day become the face of the league because he is that level talented. I don't know if he has the other stuff that goes with it um but that's a conversation for another day potentially um like he joked to Jimmy that he was gonna shoot all left-handed so like if the players are gonna look at it as a joke why would the fans look at it as something other than that
0: look to be to be fair the players I saw um Nate Jones on Twitter he works in the NBA agent space talking about I think this was last year he had some sort of Twitter thread about how much of a an investment off the court at All Star Weekend has become for the players? Where they just are being rushed around to events yeah. at uh, the entire weekend, basically, and it's supposed to be a break for them, and it kind of still feels like work. And for you know, for them to uh, to be expected to come out and and put on a legitimate show on Sunday night might be a, a little bit unfair of the league. Okay, well, let's let's take out some of the marketing stuff or whatever they're doing. If they're being paid to go to some of these sponsored corporate parties, like at, at some point, the basketball has to be the focus of the basketball league's All Star yeah, Weekend.
1: That's right.
0: And that just seems like an overly simplistic and obvious thing to say, but it clearly needs to be said because we we haven't got it
1: thus far.
2: I mean, I I think the 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 most entertaining portion of All Star Weekend this past year. Um, and, and maybe the one that that fans seem to enjoy the most was Steph versus Sabrina in the three point contest.
0: That's true. It's true. I mean, and even that came with its own little side of controversy with Kenny Smith on the mic talking rough. about how she. I mean, he had a couple of rough moments on the mic. One, yeah. the one that sticks out was when he said she should have shot from the from the WNBA line, and I, I mean. Okay. Can't what, what the best opinion I've seen on that one is I think Sue Bird came out and said we should have had a woman in the booth for that for that moment I could not agree more of, agree. Uh, with that it's just that's a pers- that that's a unique perspective that Kenny Smith just doesn't have and yep. that I, that I think by the way if we if we want to build on some positive from All Star Weekend maybe more of that you know we used to have the Shooting Stars competition where we had to have a WNBA player a former mm-hmm. player and a current player working in concert. That, that's a great opportunity for cross-promotion for the WNBA to get them more involved, especially as we have more – like Caitlin Clark coming up right. um, into the ranks. Like we get more recognizable faces um, into the WNBA and put them on that stage. I think that would be great going forward. Um,
2: and here's why but- I love Steph Curry. Like a big reason why I just – everything about Steph, how he carries himself, the way that he plays, um, he just understands. Like, the impact that he can have and the platform that he does have. And it's like, some of these guys probably have too big of an ego or too much pride. And they look at the downside of potentially losing that kind of competition. You know, he could go on a cold streak. He could just have an off night. But, like, he didn't look at the downside of, am I going to turn into a meme are people going to make fun of me because I lose in, in a contest that I should theoretically dominate as the greatest shooter of all time? Like the greatest shooter of all time, setting all of that kind of stuff aside, um, to to put on a show, to to, to make it a moment um, and, and to do something different, I think speaks to the, the, the kind of person that Steph is and a big reason why like he has been so integral to the revolutionization of of basketball over the last 10 15 years
0: i think it also speaks to the level of security and confidence he has in his stroke sure. right like to right. your point that's that that's a a big moment for where a lot of guys you know wouldn't want to risk losing in that spot um and by the way there's there would be no shame in losing to Stephen no, iansquish they she scored 26 points which tied damian lillard uh, during his final round who won the three-point shootout for the second consecutive year. Right. Um, but it is an ego thing, and it just goes – I mean, Steph is so cemented as the greatest shooter of all time. Right. But he, he might not have even seen that, seen the downside in it. Um, but I, I think – all right, enough all-star talk. We have – Yes. It was, we've already talked about how bad it is, so we don't need to spend <laughs> any more breath on it. Uh, we'll talk, let's talk about the Cavs. We're going to do um, – we're going to introduce a novel concept to the podcasting world, we're going to draft. We're going to do a podcast draft. I know. Let's go. People have people have not seen this uh, attempted in too many corners of the audio space, but we're going to give it a go, and we're going to draft the most consequential storylines of the second half of the Cavs season. Okay. Cav, Chris, you are the resident expert. I guess technically,
2: Man. the
0: guest, you're the shooting guard on this podcast, so I'm going to give you the first pick.
2: Really. Uh. Man, I was hoping that you would take the first pick because I would just take the the leftover and be okay with it. Got to put
0: a man to a decision.
2: All right, so I think the most consequential thing in the final 29 games is the dynamic between Jared Allen and Evan Mobley because this version of Evan Mobley is different than the version of Evan Mobley at the beginning of the season. Um, He's more sure of himself. He has more confidence shooting from mid-range out to the three-point line. Um, He's already made more threes during this stretch since coming back from knee surgery than he did in the beginning of the season when he just made two. Um, So, like, his evolution combined with um, Jared Allen becoming more of a focal point of offense, more involved offensively, his touches have gone up, um, his shot attempts have gone up and just how J.B. Bickerstaff continues to navigate that particular dynamic. Because, Jimmy, you know this, a big part of the Cavs going on that run without Darius, without Evan, had to do with the fact that it was um, a one-in, four-out offense. It was one big surrounded by four shooters. It was more spacing. It was more three-point shooting. And it was easy for J.B. last year to say, you know what, I'm not going to break up Evan and Jarrett because what I gain defensively is so much more impactful than than what I get if if I break them up and go more offensive-minded. Because the only options he had to go to if he was going to break up Jarrett and Evan were like Kevin Love, who was awful before his buyout. Um, Dean Wade, who his confidence was wrecked and he was playing with a shoulder that he couldn't lift above his head. Um, Jetty Osman and Lamar Stevens. So it's like JV was looking at the situation saying, I don't gain anything by splitting those two guys up because I have nobody else that I can go to to create a different kind of look. So even though there are spacing issues, even though there are offensive limitations, they're still at their best together. Now he has some other options to go to. If he's going to stagger those two, that means Dean Wade, that means George Niang. That means potentially Max Struess in a small ball lineup. So there's something that the Cavs can gain um, by going away from the combination of Jarrett and Evan. So, how does JB handle that? And how does Evan and Jarrett, that whole dynamic, work itself out, especially on the offensive end of the floor? Because Jarrett Allen, Dean Wade has been a better combination than Jarrett Allen, Evan Mobley. Um, both on offense and enough on defense where it's a net positive for the Cavs.
0: It it took my number one pick off the board. It really is a fascinating um, situation that the Cavs find themselves in. Because as you mentioned, from a, from an identity standpoint, like this is how the Cavs sort of uh, found their rise last year with the, with the two big lineups, why they're, they, those two were the foundation of, of the league's best defense last year. And the, the other thing is from, from the individual players' perspective, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are two very unselfish players. And I, I, I would describe them both as having very, very small egos. Uh-huh. But Jared Allen's a former all-star right? Who's on, who, who makes a lot of money. Evan Mobley is often described, and I would agree, as the most important piece of the Cavs' future. He's gonna be he's gonna be on a a gargantuan extension very soon. Like that's a big pill to swallow. Like if one of those guys ends up not closing games in important moments, that is a very difficult thing for just a competitive person to swallow. And and that that point actually leads me into what my pick is going to be, which is the I don't know. I I guess we're gonna call this the the fifth guy decision Uh because if we take if we accept the possibility. Or even likelihood that that the Cavs are going to have to close or play long stretches with only one or Jared Jared Allen and Evan Mobley on the floor. That means one of likely Isaac Okoro or Dean Wade yep. will be filling those spots. That's how you. That's how you kind of keep the defensive floor as high as it can be while while adding a little bit more spacing out there. In theory,
2: Karis is another it's, option too.
0: Oh, that's right, Karis Karras Levert as well. But I'm, I'm talking to maximize the defense. Yep. It's Okoro and Dean Wade. Both of them are are shooting uh 30 around 39% Dean Wade's closer to 40 on four attempts Okoro on 2.7 attempts. Is that going to stick? And and more important right. can we can we ever can we get to the point over the next 30 games where where teams respect them not as 40% shooters but as guys that they are that are not ignored.
1: Can mm-hmm. we make
0: defenses can we make defenses account for I mean in the next series a lot went wrong in that series but and and I think Donovan and Darius deserve some of the share of their of their blame for not no, no. bringing their best offensive games to the table but some of, it was just the the driving lanes are so gummed up man there's only so much you can do because there's a guy on the winger in the yep. corner that you just can't trust to make a shot so I think it's that's that's another huge part of of the rest of the year that's my first pick and it's it's directly related to what you were just talking about these guys yep. It, I think you've you've talked about it on this podcast before. It's not even necessarily a three point percentage conversation. Nope. It's an attempt conversation. Yep. Can their confidence get to the point where they are firing without hesitation every time they're open? Because you still see it sometimes. Um, again, partially because they're unselfish players from from Okoro more than Dean, where he'll pass up some shots that I think they would, if the if he feels like that ball's going in, you'd like to see it go up sometimes. Yeah.
2: So my next pick then, Jimmy, Darius Garland. And and how does he continue to get himself back into a rhythm? Um, Get his timing back? Get his basketball shape back? Uh, Darius talked about it before we went to the all-star break. Just he's not back. And he doesn't feel like he's back. But he was going to use this all-star break to do everything that he needed to do back in the weight room, on the court, trying to get himself back to a level where he's closer to the old Darius Garland. Because this version of Darius Garland that we've seen throughout most of this year, like it's not the guy who has the biggest contract in franchise history. It's not the guy that was an all-star a couple of years ago. It's not the guy that forms one of the most dynamic pairings in the entire NBA alongside Donovan Mitchell. So can Darius Garland get back to the level um, that he needs to get to for this team to be, as dynamic as they can possibly be on the offensive end. And like, can he get himself back to a level where he feels, um, more like himself going into the postseason? Uh, because the postseason is going to be a big time proving ground, um, for Darius, Darius, especially, because if you're Donovan Mitchell and you're at a place in your career where you believe you're ready to compete for championships, And that's the place where Donovan is at. He believes that he is ready to compete for championships. He needs to see that same readiness from his running mate. Like Darius Garland is a big reason why Donovan was so excited to come to Cleveland. Play alongside him. They'll take pressure off of each other. They'll take attention away from each other. They'll take the eyes of the defense away from each other. So Donovan is wondering just is Darius ready for what the playoffs demand like is there a maturity to his game is there a seasoning to his game is there a playoff like readiness to his game and Darius needs to use the final 29 games to prepare himself physically and mentally for what's to come in the playoffs and what version of the the Darius Garland the Cavs get I think is going to to go a long way into uh, their ability to hang on to the two seed in the Eastern conference and their ability to um, make a deep run in the postseason. So he needs to be better than the guy that we've seen in the first 53 games. And there are circumstances tied to why he hasn't been that guy. Um, but if he's not better, it's going to be problematic for the Cavs. Of
0: course, Garland has been hurt. Dealing, was battling the hamstring at the beginning of the year, and, and now he's he's missed a good block of time after getting hit in the face yet again. No one happens to no one as often as it happens to Darius Garland. But the numbers are the numbers. It's a three-year low in sc- in scoring average. Yep. It is the, the lowest assist per game total of his career. It's the worst three-point shooting uh, percentage of his career. It's actually a career high in two-point field goal percentage if you want to take some uh, some silver lining away from that. But the turnovers are back to around, not quite, but around the numbers that they were when he was the lone offensive engine of this team, and the Cavs were just saying, "Here, do offense," you know? Right. And now he's got Donovan Mitchell. It should be a lot easier on him. So, yeah, to your point, the Darius thing is a huge is a huge. Not it's not a question. We know Darius Garland is good, but it's it's going to have a huge impact on however this season finishes. And you mentioned seating there. That's it's. I know we're talking about people here, and it's. Not fun to look at paper, but I have this, I'm have drafting the standings as my second pick, the, so, the okay. second storyline to watch uh, for the rest of the season because I think it matters a ton. I think it matters um, to stay at, le- at least on the 2-3 line where you in, where you avoid Boston until the Eastern Conference Finals. Presumably. Obviously, we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about the Conference Finals, but you want to avoid seeing Boston, the most complete team in the East, as long as possible. Um, so at least stay on the two-three line, and you, you want to stay on the two line because the Caps have been great at home for two years now. I mean that's that, that, and in the playoffs that that home court advantage um, ratchets up. You want especially if you're playing a team like Milwaukee, where you know I wrote about them today. They are they are not even close to what we thought they would be so far this season.
1: Mm-hmm. They look
0: beatable, but they still do have you know honest. Giannis Antetokounmpo, Damian Lillard, Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez. Those guys have been through the wars together. There's still an experience gap. There's still a playoff seasoning gap between them and the Cavs. So it would really help Cleveland to have that playing field leveled a little bit by having the home crowd roaring behind you. And then, you know, hopefully, I mean, if you get to that point, you've already won a series, you get your feet a little bit wetter. And then we're talking about, again, we've gotten ahead of ourselves. The first round matchup. Yes. I mean. Correct. Last, again, you talked about it in our last episode. How different would we look at the Cavs if they had played the Nets or not the Knicks, who can, who are certified bullies of everybody, not just the Cavs, in the first round last year? I mean, the difference between playing, I'm thinking like— like Orlando, if, if you, if you, Chicago. Orlando, Miami, Chicago, yeah. But, and even if you drop down to three, now Philly's in play. Yes. Philly, That's- like, I Embiid's mean, going to be reevaluated. I think, in the next week or so. That's when they, they said four weeks from the injury. Yeah. We don't know when he's actually going to come back, though, and they have been bleeding losses since he left. And you you could argue that it could still be, I mean, it's, it's still being on the, if, even if it's Philly at three, that means it's not New York, it's not Milwaukee, it's not any yes. of these other teams in the middle. Right. That's still better. But the difference between two and three might be a play in, no, is the difference between a playing team and not a playing team, but it might yes. be the difference between a playing team. And the freaking reigning MVP of the league, who was who was scoring at literal Wilt Chamberlain um, <laughs> rate of pay, or it was like points points per minute. I think Embiid was scoring thirty five a game in thirty four minutes.
1: Yeah,
0: and we don't know that he can get back to that. But you don't want to see any even the possibility of having to deal with that guy over a seven game series. So I'm taking the seating number two. What you got, Chris?
2: I think that's actually really good too, and that's where I was going to go next um, because. You're right. Like if the Cavs stay number two, the only matchup that that you could foresee in the first round that would make you queasy is the Miami Heat, right? right? But there's a legitimate chance that Miami catches Indiana and Miami moves from seven to six or seven to five or something like that. So if the Cavs got Indiana, Orlando, Chicago, Atlanta, Brooklyn in round one, any one of those teams, you feel like the Cavs are the favorites. Right? You feel like the matchup problems that were related to the Knicks series last year in the first round are not going to be as apparent. And that could be the difference between a successful season and a bunch of changes within the organization. So I'm right there with you. That was a good pick. Um but since you took that one, I'm gonna go a different direction. And I'm gonna say my third pick is JB Bickerstaff and how he handles this rotation. Because there are 10 or 11 guys that have earned more playing time that are worthy of being in this every night rotation. And JB's just not going to play 11. He might not even play 10. He might whittle it down to 8/9 because this particular coach is comfortable doing that. There are other coaches around the NBA that are more comfortable going deeper into their bench. This is not one of them in saying that um, he needs to understand that even though the Cavs depth and their bench was a weakness last year, it's become a strength and he can't afford to mismanage the Sam Merrill situation, right? He can't afford to mismanage the Dean Wade situation because confidence is really, really important for guys, especially going into the playoffs And JB needs to continue to lean on his depth. He needs to continue to lean um, on his shooting. And Sam Merrill, since Darius Garland and Evan Mobley came back, Sam Merrill has not had a single game, Jimmy, where he's gotten 20 minutes. That can't happen. He's too important. He's too important to the way that the offense functions. He's too important in terms of creating off-ball movement. He's too much of a threat to an opposing um, defense. He takes too much attention away from the other players, making it easier on them. So I know Darius is going to be off a minute restriction coming up, and Evan Mobley is going to be off his minute restriction. But just because that's going to happen, that doesn't mean ignoring some of the guys that were so important to the Cavs getting to this point where they're 36-17, and 17, second in the Eastern Conference. So how does JB handle what seems to be a full strength roster with many guys that deserve um, consistent playing time and a consistent role.
1: There's there's
0: so much there. I'm really glad you brought that up because it is a tight needle to thread. Because as you know, Chris, playoff rotations get shorter. That's just how yes, it works. You're, you're playing you're, probably, you're playing eight, maybe nine guys max in the playoffs. A lot of guys, a lot of teams go seven. Shallower teams can even go six sometimes. Um, but you do need to that doesn't mean you need to start doing that in march you want to have it can be eight different guys it could be eight guys one night eight, eight different guys another night you know three different you know, switch three on the back end switch two on the back end whatever and confidence is important to everybody but it's particular important particularly important to shooters right like yes. shooters are like almost like the kickers and punters of yep. the nba especially the shooting <laughs> specialists they are very weird and superstitious and I, I've covered I covered Fred Hoiberg at Nebraska, who played in the NBA, is was about a specialist shooter a specialist shooter gets, and he used to talk all the time about how how in his head, even if you're in the NBA, like you yes. are cemented as one of the best basketball yes. players in the world. How in your head you can get yep. if you miss two, three in a row. So that's I think that's a great point, and it's it is a big challenge for JB in particular because he's a defense for he's a defense first coach who I yeah. think tends to lean on guys who can guard better. When he's when he's making tough decisions in the rotation, right? Like yep. he is going to, just by his nature, his gut is going to tell him
1: if it's a, if,
0: if Ty goes to Isaac Okoro, right? Ty yep. goes to the runner. Ty goes to Isaac Coro. Ty goes to Dean Wade, even if they're not making shots at the same clip Sam Merrill um, is making. But sometimes you need you need Sam Harold. You need to be able to have the confidence in him and in yourself to play that card and in the guys around him that they can pick up for whatever Sam Merrill wax. Um, I think that's I think that's a great point that you just made right there. My last pick. This is kind of cheating because it's a playoff focused thing, but I think it's worth talking about. Uh, Donovan Mitchell's playoff numbers.
1: Mm. Kind of interest, interesting.
0: Kind of interesting. He's got he's got two great years. 2019, 2021. 20, 20, 20, Those are two interesting years to have two great years, right? Because yep. that's the bubble year, and it's the sort of half bubble year where fans were kind of back, not back. And we saw some shooting explosions during that year. I remember the, the, the bubble year, I believe, is when he had the crazy duel with Jamal Jamal Murray. Murray, where they yeah. were both giving each other 50 pieces the whole time. We were like, oh my God. Like, it was so, it stood out. It was such an outlier that we kind of immediately in the moment were like, is this real or are these guys shooting in an empty gym? <laughs> Those are the only two years in Donovan Mitchell's career where he shot over 50% on effective field goal percentage in the playoffs. I think that's really interesting to me. I'm not here. I'm not sitting here. Let me be clear. I'm not sitting here and questioning whether Donovan Mitchell can be a lead dog for a playoff team. I think he is. And part of this as well, like, he's, this guy's been in the playoffs every single year of his career, which means, and he's been like a lead offensive dog every single year of his career. Like, as a mm-hmm. rookie, the Jazz asked him to do this. As a second right. year player, the Jazz asked him to do this. Last year, they were extending like, the Cavs didn't have great spacing around him. There's a lot going on for Donovan Mitchell in the playoffs, his entire career. But I, I just think that if the Cavs are going to get where they want to go, th- those numbers have to tick up a little bit. And I, yes. and I think that again, we're not we're not debating Donovan's um, status as a superstar right now. But like, there's a difference between superstar or even like superstar and super duperstar, star. Or if you want to draw the line at star and superstar, like the great ones. What what I'm saying here, the great ones elevate their play in the playoffs. And the very good ones can try to match it and sometimes fall short. So that's something I'm keeping my eye on the rest of the year.
2: I think it's fair because if you look at Donovan's resume, like it is unbelievable. You know, He was in the MVP conversation last year. He was the Eastern Conference starter last year. Um, his first two years in Cleveland have been brilliant. Everything that he did in the Jazz took them to the playoffs every single season that he was in the NBA. He has never missed the the playoffs in his career. But like (laughs) the thing people wonder about when it comes to Donovan is is he an 82 game player or is he a 16 game player? And there's a difference. There's a huge difference. And a couple of years ago, he was outplayed on the biggest stage by Jalen Brunson, and then last year. On the biggest stage, he was outplayed again by Jalen Brunson. At some point, like Donovan needs to take that leap into the next stratosphere. And I know that it sounds weird because of all of the all-stars, because of all of the individual accolades, because of all of the success that he's already had. And you can argue that he's a top 15, top 20 player in the NBA. But the thing that people wonder about him, the missing piece on his resume Is playoff success. And even Donovan, Jimmy, has talked about this. He's like, look, Max Struess has been to a place that I've never been. Like, I got to learn from him. Like, yeah, Donovan's more accomplished than Max Struess. Donovan's more accomplished than George Niang. But Donovan's learning from these guys. Like, what does it take to get there? What does it look like when you are there? There are things that Donovan, as great as he is, as elite as he is at so many different aspects of the game, It just hasn't translated to playoff success the way that somebody with his resume probably should at this point. So he needs to show that he can get past the second round. And there is a ton of pressure on Donovan going into the postseason, especially coming off this season that he's going to be coming off of where he's already talked about, hey, like I should get more attention for MVP. I should be in that conversation. I should have been an all-star starter. I shouldn't have been coming off the bench for the all-star game. Like he has put more pressure on himself at times by saying those kinds of things. And he knows it's time where he plays to the star standard in the playoffs because if he doesn't, then that reputation is going to be very, very difficult to shake.
0: The attention is coming. So he'll, he'll have the stage. He'll have the stage that he wants to prove himself as, as one of those guys. This is it's also like it's, it could end up becoming a question about like the Cavs roster construction because the o- the only finals mvp to be shorter than 6 i did this last year 6 6 or whatever some cutoff like that of the last i think 20 years since 2000 25 years is Steph yeah. curry it's one basketball is still as amazing as all these yes. shooters and ball handlers are it is for tall people
1: yeah it is
0: and the, the reason i bring that up is that the Orlando Magic come to town on Thursday. And the Orlando Magic are not ready to, to obviously contend for anything yet. They are a fun young team who happen to be tied with the Miami Heat for the seventh spot <laughs> in the Eastern Conference right now while the Cavs are two. So it is possible
1: mm-hmm. that in a couple
0: months we could be talking about the Cavs' Magic playoff matchup. And guys like Paolo Bancaro, who's like 6'8", 6'9", 6'10", he's big, those guys tend to translate better into the postseason than guys like Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. So I, want, I just want to use this. We don't have, I'm not, we're, I promise we're not doing an Orlando Magic-Cleveland Cavaliers playoff preview <laughs> two months too early right now. Yeah. I just want to get, Chris, here I, uh, on the big picture. If the Cavs stay in the two seed, what's your assessment on who they should or should not want to play? Pick one of each.
2: Yeah, the only one that they should not want to play is Miami. That is the only team that would make me queasy. And look, like if Indiana fell um to seven, that would be a daunting matchup, especially because, you know, Siakam's going to continue to get more comfortable. He's going to continue to get better. The Tyrese Halliburton thing is real. He has shown himself now, he hasn't shown it on the playoff stage, but in other moments, he has looked like a big game player. In season tournament, very, very good. He was in the MVP running for that. You know, in close games against the Cavs, he has just completely slammed the door in their face. Um, and Indiana has, you know, a historically great offense. Like, it is unbelievably good. Now, their defense is just a disaster. It's but, so bad. you know, the Cavs would have to keep up with them on the offensive end of the floor, and that is not an easy task. Um, so I guess you would feel a little iffy about that one, um, but Miami, to me, is the team that stands out that the Cavs would want to avoid. Eric Spolstra is arguably the best coach in the NBA. Jimmy Butler turns it on in the playoffs. Um, they've got a championship pedigree. They've got um, a ton of playoff experience. Um, I I just think, like, all of that even though Miami has been a relative disappointment in the regular season to this point, the fact that there's seven in the Eastern conference, um, you just feel like that's the kind of team that when the playoffs come around, um, they kick it into a different kind of gear that, that maybe a team like the Cavs is still trying to find. So I think the Cavs would be favored against Orlando. I think they'd be favored against Chicago, Atlanta, probably even Indiana. And against Miami, it would be close to a pick'em series. That For the Cavs to go all season long, lock up the two-seed, and have to play Miami in the first round is about the worst outcome that they could have.
0: I'm not sure you could find a realistic playoff potential matchup where the playoff experience gap is bigger than Miami and, and Cleveland right now. Yeah. I mean, that Miami's... Miami's going to turn on the the Knicks film from last year and see how like, you know, see the Jared, Jared Allen quote about the lights were, pre- that's food to them. Those, yeah. I mean that you're right to that point there, there's, that's the last team that particularly this Cavs team wants to see. I know Miami is doing the weird regular season thing again, where right. they kind of look dead, but I will never they're They are really like a, a zombie. You gotta, you gotta chop off the head and, and you know, melt it all, all that they are. Yeah. That's a believe it when I see it thing when when the Miami run comes to it. and I will to your point about Indiana though, um one more thing. like Rick Carlisle, Eric is yep. the best coach in the league. Rick Carlisle's top three to five, yep. and I just I always remember when I think it was the Spurs team that won the championship and and embarrassed the LeBron, Dwayne Wade Miami Heat. Rick Carlisle took you know late career Dirk Navinsky, late career Vince Carter and Devin Harris and pushed that Spurs. Spurs team to seven games. That guy cool. is another coach that you just don't want to see in the in the playoffs.
2: Yeah, and the thing that that JB has on his side this year, and look, he has a lot to prove as a playoff tactician. um He's only had two series as a head coach, but like we talked about this, he has more chess pieces to move around the board, and that can certainly help his decisions look a little bit better. Um, it could certainly help him when it comes to try and match wits with with Carlisle with Eric Spolstra uh, with Quinn Snyder if that happens to be the case who is also a very good tactician um but in saying that like you know going into those kinds of series I, I think it would be fair to say that the coaching edge would be on the other side
0: Agree. Uh real on the on the Pacers thing too, another thing I just thought. Could be a Sam Merrill series. If we're trying to if we're, if <laughs> no we're trying to keep up with offense, could be a Sam Merrill series.
2: No doubt. Um, that's one where maybe you lean more on offense as opposed to defense. Yep.
0: All right, that'll wrap it up for today's edition of the Wine and Gold Talk Podcast. Keep it locked to Cleveland dot com for all of your uh your Cavs your Cavs questions, follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Fedor. Chris.
1: Yep. That's right. At,
0: follow me at Jimmy Watkins ninety-five. Um
1: And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.